My name is Gene Colan, and welcome to my studio. Each time I got a story, it was always uppermost in my mind as to how different can I make this one, and this one, and so on. And as they came in, it was, I just threw myself into it, lived another life in a sense. I tried to get into that story myself. I tried to jump into the page and try to imagine what it would be like to see it visually as an outsider. When you have it developed a style, it's as recognizable as your hand, as your handwriting. Same thing. I wanted the, the story to be sort of uh, mystifying and sinister. Hello and welcome back to another thrilling episode of FW Presents, the proud anthology show of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Ryan Daly, and I am so excited because once again I get to showcase the work of my favorite comic book artist, Gene Colan. Only this time, I'm not just covering a single issue. I'm talking about an entire four-issue miniseries, the 1981 Superman spin-off, The Phantom Zone. And in order to tackle this entire event, I needed more than one guest. I needed both of the guys who told me I had to cover this miniseries when I first decided to do a showcase on Gene Colan. These guys are longtime friends of the Fire and Water Network. They are both bloggers and frequent podcast guests, and I'm happy to say that I have had the pleasure of eating dinner with them, and their table manners are exceptional. First up, from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl, please welcome Martin Gray. What's up, Martin? All is well, Ryan. Just had a nice day at work, and we're still locked down here in Scotland, but light is at the end of the tunnel. I'm having my jack soon, and all will be well. Hope so. The light at the end of the tunnel is appropriate for what we're going to be talking about, so that's good to hear. And second, from Comic Box Commentary, the Supergirl blog, Dr. Ange. Hello, Ange. Uh, hey, uh, thanks for inviting me, uh, Ryan. Uh, I'm very excited to talk about this. Uh, I have had both COVID vaccines, so uh, I'm closer to that uh, light at the end of the tunnel. And I just have to tell you to convulse. <laughs> All righty. Uh, we are going to talk a lot about the Phantom Zone and the Superman family of characters involved in this story. But before that, I want to hear about how and when you guys discovered the art of Gene Colan and your impressions of his work, his style. Uh, Martin, you first. What do, what do you think about Gene? I really, really adore the work of Gene, the Dean Colan, as they used to call him. I first came across his work in the UK reprints of Daredevil and saw they were in black and white. And I just love the inky moodiness of the world that he created, the slickness of his vision and the feeling of realism that was apart from any other Marvel comic I'd seen. And then soon afterwards, I saw him on Tomb of Dracula and Mind Blown. It was such a scary world that I used to walk home at night sometimes and imagine the characters, and it was fearsome. I didn't actually know at the time that he was also the artist who was going by Adam Austin in Submariner reprints. And I've just I've loved his work over there ever since I followed him from project to project, and I really miss him, but thank goodness he's left such a fantastically large body of great work. <laughs> Ange, what about you? I discovered him uh, right around the time of this miniseries. So I'll say probably within a two to three year period at DC Comics, he did this Phantom Zone miniseries. He had a run with Roy Thomas on Wonder Woman when she got sort of a new outfit. It was a bold new direction for her. Uh, and then he did Night Force. And I can tell you that 
for me back then, I think his work worked or his art worked best um, on Night Force. But uh, as a kid, I thought um, I didn't like it that much. He's one of those um, artists that as you grow up and you mature and you go back and look at these things again, um, he just becomes more and more breathtaking. So um, Night Force, I just think, is a tour de force for him. It's just so strange and eerie. We've talked about Night Force together on, yeah, <laughs> on podcasts. Nice. Um, and so then when I rediscover him and like go back and read Phantom Zone and look at that Wonder Woman and then you know pick up the odd Doctor Strange and, and see who's who, who's who entries like Night Slayer, uh, you just realize that he's just a master. Uh, and so when you uh, started this podcast, um, I was excited because I was going to learn a lot about his Marvel stuff because uh, I really only know him from DC. Yeah, we, 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 we talked about Night Force back on Midnight the Podcasting Hour when I was doing that and you guessed it on those. Um, and I, I one of the first episodes of this showcase I did on his first issue of Wonder Woman. And... Yeah, I, I mean, looking at that, I've, I've kind of mentioned this before, but, you know, he, he seems like he's tailor-made to some of those Mysterioso and horror things like Night Force, Tomb of Dracula, and even more of the the superheroes that kind of live in the shadows like a Batman and even Daredevil. I think he's like perfectly apt for those. You wouldn't think somebody with his style would work on Captain America, Iron Man, Superman, Supergirl, these type of characters. And yet... I find myself liking them, like, strangely, even though his, his style doesn't seem like it's, like, you know, the, the, the heroic poster shot you want of these characters. There's something about it when he does it. Because I, I was, like, yeah, unless I do, like, unless I cover Gem, Son of Saturn, issue four or something, I probably won't get a chance to talk about Gene Colan drawing Superman. And then you guys were like, oh, he did the Phantom Zone. You've got to talk about the Phantom Zone. And... I kind of hemmed and hawed about it because I, 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 I've never been that interested in the Phantom Zone as a concept. And, and part of it was, you know, uh, having seen, you know, Superman 2, and then I wasn't a Superman reader growing up, and then just kind of in the, the 2000s, mid-2000s, I started looking at the Superman comics when I really got into DC, and one of my Superman gateways was All-Star Superman, which had a story with Phantom Zone prisoners getting out. And also at the same time, Jeff Johns and Dick Donner working together on Action Comics, and their first story arc with The Last Son that introduced John Kent also had the villains getting out of the Phantom Zone and everything. And then the movie Man of Steel with villains getting out of the Phantom Zone. And I just felt like I had seen so much of it. I was like, I never really want to see the Phantom Zone again. I'm kind of done. I'm tapped out of this. Um, for for only having a limited exposure with Superman, I felt like I'd seen too much of the Phantom Zone. And you guys were like, yeah, but you really, really want to read this miniseries. So I looked at it, I was like, okay, it's drawn by Gene Colan. Wait now, who is it written by? Steve Gerber? Really? The Howard the Duck guy? Did he do... Actually, that'll that'll let me get into the, the creative credits for this one. This four-issue miniseries uh, featured cover dates of January through April of 1982. The issues actually went on sale starting October of 1981 through January of the following year. The story is drawn, of course, by Gentleman Gene Colan, with Tony DeZaniga inking him. It was colored by Carl Gafford, lettered alternatively by Milt Snappen on the odd issues and Ben Oda on the evens, and edited by Dick Giordano. And yes, the story was written by the notorious Steve Gerber, 
from Howard the Duck and the Defenders and really some of the more batshit crazy ideas over at Marvel in the 70s. So, um, Have you guys read any, any of his other DC work that he did? I've, I've not read a lot. Oh, the only other DC work I can remember offhand is a couple of issues of Mr. Miracle that he did after Steve Gerber, Steve, after, sorry, after Steve Engelhardt did oh, yeah. issues in the, in the revival in the 70s, which were a bit odd, and I, I enjoyed them, but I didn't really understand what was going on. And apart from that, about around the same time, or a couple of years after maybe, after this miniseries, Phantom Zone, he did, uh, in fact, no, I was going to say he did Nathaniel Dusk, but that was, that was actually Don McGregor, so... I don't really think I've seen much DC work from him at all. Remind me, Ange. No, no, no. It's so funny that you say that because I'm the same way. I only have those couple of issues of Mr. Miracle after Englehart and Marshall Rogers. Um, and I mean, Gerber and Michael Golden on weird Mr. Miracle issues is pretty cool. Um, <laughs> and then the only other thing I, I know of him is um, the DC Comics Presents issue that is sort of like an epilogue to this years or years later. Oh, yes. We'll get to that at the end. Um, but yeah, we should probably, we should dive into this. So, looking at Phantom Zone issue one, The Haunting of Charlie Queskill. Cover was by Gene Colan. We'll talk about that a little bit later. The on sale date was October 22nd, 1981. Daily Planet staffer Charlie Queskill is sent home after falling asleep at his desk. At home, he is plagued by hallucinatory nightmares. He finds himself on an alien world, the fabled Krypton, and witnesses Jor-El demonstrate the Phantom Zone projector for the first time in order to gain admission to the Science Council. From there, Charlie views all of the highlights of Krypton's judicial system as the worst, most vile offenders are captured and condemned to imprisonment in the Phantom Zone. Charlie wakes up. In his sleep, he somehow went to Star Labs, battled his way through security, and stole a vital piece of technology. Back at the Daily Planet, Clark Kent hears about Charlie's problems. He takes an interest because Charlie Queskill is, in fact, Quexol, a former Kryptonian prisoner from the Phantom Zone, having been released by Superman after he discovered Quexol was wrongly convicted. After exposure to gold kryptonite, Quexol lost his powers forever, but Superman helped him establish himself on Earth as Charlie Queskill. The other evil Phantom Zone prisoners, however, banded together and telepathically manipulated Charlie into stealing the parts necessary to build a new Phantom Zone projector. After his nightly news broadcast, Clark Kent changes into Superman and flies off to check on Charlie. Too late, when he arrives, Charlie activates the projector. The device explodes, but the result is freeing the dozen evil Kryptonians on Earth while trapping Superman and Charlie in the zone. Quick first thoughts on the cover to this one? It's a little bit cheesy, I find, with sort of Superman. In, you know, where the, cover, the cover is divided into two parts. There's one, one panel with Superman on the left saying, Quexel has committed a crime and Kryptonian law demands he be sent to dot, dot, dot. And his speech is taken up by an executioner on the right in another panel, the Phantom Zone, when then Charlie's screaming, well, Quexel is screaming, no, no, as he's watched by other Phantom Zone prisoners who are in the issue. But it's it's dramatic, but it is. it's it's The art is a lot, lot more scared than inside. The Superman figures a bit, a bit static, but where it excels is on the right, the horror of of Quexel getting protected into the zone. He ripped the sheer, the sheer terror on his face is etched brilliantly by Colan. So I like it overall, but 
I think it could have been stronger. Yeah, for me, what I'll say is that um, if you put on the cover uh, the Phantom Zone villains escaping and about to attack Superman, you'd probably get a lot more people buying it. This is almost like a little bit too cerebral, right? Like the Phantom Zone, is it humane or horrible, right? It's like, is this someone's thesis? So I I completely agree that um, the Questcal side of things and even like the almost um, pencil wraiths of the the Phantom Zone villains right below the title really are eye-catching. The almost, uh, I, I like that word, Martin, the static Superman that almost looks like a color form isn't exactly like a wow factor so uh, i think you kind of need a wow factor to to get people to buy your book yeah i don't like this cover (laughs) yeah i just i I think this is a really and i love there's a reason i'm doing a gene colon podcast i love his art but in general i don't think he was always the greatest when it comes to covers which is why a lot of other people did covers for him this one it it feels like they're trying to do a silver age pastiche with the book div- the cover divided into like different like little segments or something like this would have been like a Kurt Swan type of thing cuz it feels like there's three different things going on here and they're all kind of separated there's text but it's I'm not, I'm not a fan of it as much but when we get to the interiors though we'll we'll talk about favorite pages but uh just kind of notes on the story itself First of all, just uh, I did want to like hit the highlights because I just went over over them really quickly. But the prisoners that we see uh, being shunted off to the Phantom Zone, uh, Jax Ur was convicted for shooting a nuclear rocket that accidentally wiped out a moon full of colonists. Vac Ox for polluting Krypton's water supply. Doctor Zadu committed uh, convicted for conducting illegal medical experiments on people in suspended animation. Feora Huo a sadistic serial killer, and we'll see a lot more of her. Um, That's a joke, too. General Zod, who led an insurrection against Krypton, but he fails and ends up in the Phantom Zone. Nadira and Azrael, two of the popular favorites, are super-powered thieves. She is psychokinetic, and he is pyrokinetic. Cruel, the cousin of Jor-El, is stopped by Jor-El after experimenting with forbidden weapons of mass destruction. There were at least 17 others consigned to the Phantom Zone. Uh, the last person sent there we see is Quex Ol, and then we'll, we'll see that when he's uh, released later as Queskel. I, I thought it was uh, it was a very interesting take that the others in the zone, it's depicted that they kind of exist as little more than thought. Um, they, they, you know, have no no other kind of physical forms, but they, they still watch us from this world. And through that, they telepathically manipulate Jor-El into almost freeing them, and then Lara prevents them, and Jor-El blasts the, the Phantom Zone projector into space. Um, I thought that was a pretty cool touch. Wow. The thing about this issue that I find interesting is that the first half of it is really almost like the Krypton Chronicles or World of Krypton, right? This is just a, a primer on here are all of the criminals of Krypton that are in Phantom Zone, one after the other, right? And so you, uh, this is probably a way for Gerber to introduce all of the people that he's bringing in. Um, it's a shame that E. Nelson Birdwell isn't the editor here because as a kid, I would have loved to hear like, we found out Feyora Huol's history, you know, in this issue of Superman, right? Or, you know, <laughs> Quexal was introduced here and was released here, right? All of those sort of things that are missing. Um, because I'm almost positive I have read that Jor-El story somewhere. 
but I have no idea what issue that is, and, and I wish that I did. Uh, so it's just fascinating to me that <clears throat> so much of this post issue was spent on Kryptonian history. Um, so, uh, so I thought that that was a fascinating way to start. Uh, it's a great ending, you know, the ending when Superman is now in the Phantom Zone and the villains are free. That's like a kapow moment. That's really like I want to get the next issue. Um, and I don't know if you want to talk about the art here or not, but but one thing that I loved is that they included Jerem, who is uh, very much a, uh, a Supergirl uh, character more than anything else. Um, so the fact that he's introduced um, uh, at, at some point uh, in this miniseries, um, I thought was a nice touch for me. Mm-hmm. And also, of course, uh, the original story with Quesquil, Charlie Quexel, Supergirl was prominent in that as well. So it's quite appropriate that she turns up pretty quickly in the series. Agreed. Yeah, and that's, I mean, I, I think that was one of the things where once I started reading this, part of it is just Gerber, the strength of Gerber's writing, but like getting this sort of history of all of these Phantom Zone prisoners, all of a sudden I'm like, okay, this is a lot more interesting than I expected, and I, I kind of like the way he's showing it. And all of these, you know, some of these darker and more sadistic characters, the page that we get on Feora. I mean, in this, I was like, whoa, <laughs> like this woman's nuts. Like she's a serial killer who preys on men specifically. And, and we, I'm sure we will talk about page 11 in particular when we come to our favorite pages. But yeah, yeah, I, I did. I really enjoyed that whole first half with like kind of learning, learning this history. And then once it takes over, we kind of get this mystery and where Superman gets involved and, um, and yeah, for being uh, for being a uh, you know a, a Superman spinoff book. I mean, Superman is on the cover. It's Superman presents the Phantom Zone. We don't see him until page twenty-two of the comic. That is that is fair, but at least we see a little bit of his world at the, at the very beginning when we're in the, the Daily Planet and we see Perry and Charlie Perry, you know, giving Charlie a bad time for falling asleep at the wheel, as mm-hmm. it were. But yeah, I mean, going on to that page, as you know, you did bring up page 11 with Feora, and I never understood why she was renamed Ursa for the movies, but, I mean, Conan's knack for horror gives that revelatory moment of Feora's all-male concentration camp huge impact. I mean, I'd, I'd read about the, the concentration camp when she debuted in Action Comics in the Bronze Age a few years previously, but he made it so shocking. It was like I'd never, never seen it previously, never knew what she did. It's just... So incredible. I still find it quite disturbing, that scene. Yeah, for for me, I'll say, you know, these were the books that I hoped that, you know, my parents didn't flip through because they might say don't read them, right? So, <laughs> you know, we'll get to another Feora scene later on in this in this series that I think was that way. And, and when I think about um, uh, Night Force, uh, when there were, like, orgies being performed to get energy, right? Like, Colin can bring this sort of, like... Uh, sickening horror, um, and that page certainly is striking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sickening was seductive sometimes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. What were some of your like other? I mean, favorite pages? I've got a couple of them, but certainly that that page eleven. And again, this is the the one that's all about Feora, and it's just a couple of panels. But the second one with like the the Kryptonian cops busting in on her, and they've got their guns raised, and it it, it just looks kind of it's like. It's like something out of Aliens. They've got their guns raised there in this dark, kind of like smoky, misty, frozen place. They've got like they're like they're uh, like the cold breath is like freezing on them as they're in this refrigerated unit, and you just see these men hung up like freezer bags, like they're just slabs of meat, and it's horrifying. <laughs> it is. You can see the cops' stomachs churning right before our eyes. 
Yeah, it looks like a meat shop. It's really disgusting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, my favorite page, um, the first thing I'll say, uh, just general of art, um, I think Dizuniga in some ways makes this less colon than, I would say, Night Force, where I think he inked himself. Um, things don't have as completely an ethereal feel um, that I feel colon does so well. Um, but for me, my favorite page is 20, because that has all of the fan- – it's in the Phantom Zone. It's all the Phantom Zone villains talking to each other. It has that kind of ghostly feel that I think works so well um, for Colin that that would be the page that I would like. It, it really is spectacular. Yeah, I do agree that Dezuniga can be overpowering. I mean, when you see him on, on something, someone like Ernie Colon, who's just an amazing artist in his own right, but Ernie Colon was totally overpowered when Dezuniga was – Thinking him on Arak, but I don't think he. I don't think he overpowers. He, he, change, he changes Colan a little bit, but I don't think he overpowers him to to a terrible extent. I mean, it's. I mean, when I just opened this comic for the first time and just saw just saw the Colan, you know, the consummate Marvel artist, despite him having worked at DC in the fifties, of course, but on a DC book, it was just seeing the Daily Planet offices as drawn by Colan. It was it was a breath of fresh coffee and whiskey in Superman's world. He keeps to the classic looks of the characters, but everything seems a little bit murkier, feels a bit more realistic. And although we don't see him straight away, I'd say, you know, his, his Clark Kent's just exemplary. He's really like never before. The, the shadows that Conan's known for and that Dizuniga adds in even more give him, you know, physical, literal depth. It's absolutely wonderful stuff, I think. Yeah, agreed. Uh, I also, I love page 23. Really just that, that larger panel at the top when, you know, they, they we're, we're down on the ground looking up as Superman flies over the street and people are pointing and he's he's low. I mean, he's just skimming the top of the buses and then the cabs and everything. But it's a, it's a kind of classic hero shot and we just see a Superman looking like a Superman, even though it's in the, the style and the perspective of Gene Colan, which I really, really like that. And then... Uh, the penultimate page on page twenty six when Superman is going through the window, like the 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 first panel when we see his back and his legs are like that looks those look like Jack Kirby contorted like kind of limbs and everything on those panels and I really like those. I also love the coloring on the last panel when the the projector goes off and everything is starting to be whited out. That that is really really excellent. I mean I don't ever remember seeing previously a panel of Superman's backside like that in our face. <laughs> <laughs> And a little bit of dignity. You, know, you, you want something. You want something different occasionally. You know, when you're so used. I mean, I love, adore Kurt Swan's work. But when you're so used to it, you know how Superman is going to look in pretty much any situation. I mean, he even has those model sheets. It's just fantastic to see something so different. I mean, as, as for my own favorite page, it's, well, I pretty much mentioned it. It's page two, which is a day in the life of the Daily Planet. Again, one of my favorite characters, Perry White. I've seen him on many a rant and a rampage. But I, I wouldn't say anyone before or since has given him so much life. He's, I mean, the body language is just marvellous. And when he has Charlie Quexel, sorry, Queskel, fall off the chair on his face, just the impact is palpable. I, I mean, I, that, that's the page I would love to own from this book. Mm-hmm. It's also, it's a, it's from the, the script point, too, it's also a nice little humanising moment where, you know, you've got your hard-charging, you know, city editor who's demanding all of this stuff, demanding that his his staff work so hard until one of the staff members actually gets sick and collapses. And then he has a heart. He's like, hey, this guy's got to go home. we gotta, we got to take care of this guy. You know, that's, that's a nice little human moment for, 
for Perry White. It is, and I mean, even the bystanders on the street, I mean, in the panel you mentioned a second ago, Ryan with Superman flying over the, the fire truck, the old lady who's, you know, pushing, pushing a young woman out of the way going, one side, chicky, I want to look before my people with him. <laughs> I still marvel this working with DC University with, with the art of Mr. Corlan. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move on to issue two, uh, Phantom Zone number two, Earth Under Siege. Again, covered by Gene Colan and Dick Giordano. The on-sale date was November 19th, 1981. Kryptonian criminals are unleashed on Earth while Superman and Charlie Queskill can only watch from the formless barrier of the Phantom Zone. Azrael and Nadira use their pyro and psychokinetic powers to deal with the dissenter amongst their ranks and fell a Metropolis SWAT team responding to their arrival. Meanwhile, General Zod leads the others to Superman's Fortress of Solitude, where they destroy the Phantom Zone projector and viewer, ensuring that they can't be sent back and that Superman can't escape. Three of the Kryptonians fly out into space to attack the Justice League satellite headquarters, hurling it away from Earth, taking several members of the League with it. Then the Kryptonians destroy Earth's communication satellites. In the chaos and confusion, the U.S. and Russia launched nuclear missiles at each other. Wonder Woman and Supergirl manage to destroy the missiles before annihilation. Green Lantern returns to Earth to discover the criminals have stolen his power battery. He fights them for a time until his ring's charge wears off. Wonder Woman finds the badly damaged, genetically altered criminal Nam-Ak and shows him kindness, but he responds by attacking her until she catches him in her golden lasso. In Gotham, Supergirl tells Batman that Superman is missing and they split up to find him. She goes to the Fortress of Solitude, where she is ambushed by Zod, Jaxer, and Cruel. All this Superman witnesses while trapped in the Phantom Zone. Then Mon-El tells him there is a way out, that the Phantom Zone is so much more than what he and Jor-El thought. Alright, what do you think? First of all, what do you think of this cover? I like this cover better. It's definitely a lot better. I mean, I think I'm a, I'm a big I'm a big fan of word balloons on covers, but this issue does not need word balloons. I mean, as you, you've got the, the criminals looming over the prone Supergirl, you know, Supergirl is knocked out on the ground. You've got Jacksaw, Cruel, and I think it's uh, Varley's a Varley's a anyway, looming over Supergirl, going, "We've won! Supergirl is dead!" And the lettering superb, really, really good lettering. But you, you've got a, the big blur, Earth and the Siege over Supergirl. You've got the big, the big word balloons, the huge amount of sort of trade dress logo. And it, if you just had the criminals looming over Supergirl with in the background in the surfing with Superman and Quef Charlie looking looking down, that is all you need. I mean, I think it's a wonderful, wonderful cover. The colours are superb, but I think it's too busy. I like this one a lot. I'll say, um, for me, it's funny. the The part that I think is unnecessary is the the text box in the lower right hand that sort of <laughs> says like, and also guest starring these people because I think the image, as Mart says, stands up on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, what I love um, is Zod in the background. There's a lot of energy in him, and he's like screaming, pointing his fingers about how they've won. Um, and I do like that it's almost a little bit of a callback. Like in the first uh, cover, you had the Phantom Zone villains looking down on Superman, right? And now here we have Superman and Charlie looking down on the Phantom Zone villains. So there's like a little bit of uh, you know juxtaposition there that I think is nice. Um, I don't know if I particularly like the uh, non-pupiled Superman, and he kind of has a stern look. You think that he would be like more shocked that Supergirl apparently is dead. Um, but I think that from a selling point of view, 
this cover sells the story more than that first cover did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I took that as two man looking down he's, uh, as though they'd be not not eyelid, not face, eye, eyeballs. Uh, yeah, I, I assume his eyes were shut too. <laughs> For, yeah, with the the caption in the bottom corner, like with mentioning all the guest stars. I, I like how it gives Zatanna a special shout out, despite the fact that she appears in one small panel and never again. Um, but for some reason, they give they give her name prominence. Um, I I do I like the composition of the cover. I really like the way Zod is positioned, and, and, and you mentioned the kind of energy about him. I don't like Zod's costume throughout this entire series. The the sort of martial military thing. It's just a boring gray. It looks like a World War One. Like you know, officer costume or something like that, and I'm sure that's that's faithful to whatever he wore in his appearances before this. But it looks boring, and I wish he just had something a little bit more interesting to wear. Yeah, he had that about thirty years at this point. You right? Yeah, yeah. Even uh, even in the John Byrne run, when he brings back this world, he's wearing that. <laughs> so I really absolutely love this issue. The bit when I enjoyed the first one. But uh, this one, it re- everything really kicks off. And in the first one, okay, you've got a lot of a lot of the page space is taken up with reading off who's in the zone and why they're in there. But here, when you see them out of the zone, in living colour, interacting with one another, and you have you have the likes of you know the, the very ordinary guy, ordinary looking guys like Zod next to the the bonk bonkers Jerem and the monstrous, the monstrous looking uh, Namek, who's you know appeared in one of mine and just favourite Superman runs. It's just it's marvellous to see them together, and then you see the extent of the damage they can do in Earth's universe. It's an excellent issue. This will actually, you know, like throughout the next couple of issues, as we will see, of all of the villains that we get in this thing, the characters like Jax Ur and General Zod, who have had appearances in other media, you know, movies and TV shows and cartoons and stuff like that. I find them the most boring of this group. I think it's the characters you mentioned. It's it's Jerem and, and Namak, and it's these these two thieves, these with their their telepathy powers, Nadira and uh, Azrael. I think these those four are like some of the more interesting characters, and they're terrifying in their own way throughout the series. Um, and I would like, and it's like, yeah, the, but these are the ones that we don't see in the movies for some reason. I actually agree with you. These, I think, Azrael and Adira were created for this miniseries. I don't I recall them being any, anywhere anywhere else. Yeah. And um, and as far as I know, these are the first um, Kryptonians that seem to have latent superpowers and not superpowers because they're under a yellow sun or something like that. So um, I don't know if they would be considered like the first supervillains or if this is just a way that their Kryptonian powers are manifesting themselves on Earth. I don't think that's true. Um, and they are delightful. They're like they're utterly nihilistic. They don't care. Right. If you die, I don't care. If I die, I don't care. Who cares? Right, uh, you know, I, I just think that like their mixtape would be the Sex Pistols and the Smiths in equal in equal parts. Yeah, and I love it, and I love that that was that isn't something that starts when they arrive on Earth and they're just so physically superior to every person else that they develop this superiority complex. It's like no, that was part of their history, and when they got arrested and everything like like they, they, this was just like the psychotic Bonnie and Clyde, or maybe more of like the Mickey and Mallory from Natural Born Killers. This is just this like psychopathic couple that loves each other and and have these. I guess mutant superpowers that allow them to just like not just hurt people but 
hurt them like sadistically because as we've kind of been joking um he says burn and he can or wait is it is he the pyrokinetic Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, he, yes. yeah. Uh, Azrael goes burn, and people just spontaneously combust in the flames. Where she can just say convulse, and your whole body just kind of like goes into like these, these spasms. She she basically breaks your neurological system until you're just like like just like writhing in pain and agony. And they just do this because I don't know. They're like bored. What else are they gonna do? <laughs> They are, they are yeah. the more visceral fighting than you, you used to get in a DC comic back then. Yeah. Really creepy, scary people. Super Sid and Nancy. Right. <laughs> so then, uh, well, 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 that'll play out much more in issue four, because it's like when they come to Earth, they they have no compunction, they have no moral qualms about just destroying people. And it's not about conquering the world or re- like building back a new Kryptonian civilization. Their agenda is nothing to do with Zod's agenda. And it's like so. In, in one sense, they're almost a little bit scarier because you can't anticipate them. So, but getting into the rest of this issue, I loved this one. Like this one, I was having so much fun, and I forgot the fact that like Superman is almost completely absent from this issue. Um, he's basically just bookend scenes at the very beginning and the very end. Uh, or actually, yeah, is he even? In the, yeah, we barely see him until the end when they're in the zone. But um, Supergirl picks up the mantle, and, and Ange. I was reading this, and I was like, I I understand why Ange picked this one. Why he he was so much a, a fan of this one? Because until until she gets her ass kicked at the end, which you know she's fighting three three Kryptonians who you know match her her strength. She's outnumbered and outsized. Um, until that moment. She's uh, like I. She's doing great in the story. She's taking out the nuclear bombs just because of her her speed and her strength. She's doing more than Wonder Woman is when they're attacked by these nu- these nuclear arsenals. But I just love that she has the presence of mind to go to Batman and say, "You're the detective. Find my cousin because something's going on. And he needs to be here." So yeah, I thought this was a great showing for Supergirl, and I was really digging that. Um, and as you know, I posted on Twitter the the can't talk now doing hot girl shit when she and Wonder Woman are working together <laughs> to take out all of the nuclear missiles before they can annihilate life on Earth. That was fun. It's better than that time that she and Wonder Woman were models in Paris because they were lovesick. <laughs> <laughs> a, a little bit better, yeah. I'll agree. I, I mean, I think that the thing that I love about this is that um, this is not like the 16-year-old Supergirl from the Silver Age who's like, should I reveal myself? She's basically a hero at this point in her career, and she's just like, I have to do what's right, and just, you know, j- jumps into the fray and really takes charge in a way that I think um, – uh, is pretty incredible for her. So, you know, there are people that often use her as, uh, you know, or there are many writers that don't uh, treat her with any respect. It's clear that Gerber recognizes she's probably the second most powerful being um, on Earth mm-hmm. um, and, mm-hmm. and treats her as such. Uh, I mean, if you think about comic storytelling today in the decompressed style, basically in the course of like two pages, Wonder Woman and Supergirl stop World War III from happening by intercepting every nuclear missile that gets fired. I mean, that's crazy, <laughs> uh-huh. right? That's about as compressed as you can get. And and I really like the way Colin draws uh, Car. This is the second time I've, uh, you know, or this another time that I've seen him draw her because he she also is in that Wonder Woman uh, mini mini part with the adjudicator where um, she's fighting Nazis in World War Two of all things. Um, right, right. That's so. Uh, yeah. So. Um, so I really um, love both the story and the art uh, involving Supergirl here. And that's that's the scene that you mentioned when they're stopping World War Three with it, stopping the nuclear warheads. That's one of my favorite pages because you have you know you have Wonder Woman 
straining to get the get the nuclear missiles, and she's asking Artemis, the goddess, to guide the last his aim, straining to stop it. And in those days, you know, yes, you had to work harder, which was more impressive. Things things didn't come as easily as they do nowadays when she's basically wonder superwoman. It, and Colan draws the heck out of that. It's amazing. I also thought Green Green Lantern had a good showing for as short a, a brief a time it is. I mean, it's obviously like he shows up and he's he's also outnumbered and his his ring runs out of juice. But you know, for you know, he he runs right into the danger and he's ready to throw down with them until until he can't handle it anymore and they take him down. But that was a good good moment for Al. Agreed. Yeah. Should have made Kryptonite with the ring. Didn't think fast enough. Yeah. <laughs> and. And my, uh, yeah, I, I love, I love, the, I love the way he draws Greenland. I love the way he draws Wonder Woman. And but back, I mean, back to Supergirl. The first, the first time we see her on page ten, she really is something to behold. She's strong, sexy, not objectified. Uh, she really, I like Andrew saying, you know, she's, she's the, she's the real, you know, superhero. She's not Superman's kid partner. She's not the sidekick. She's one of Earth's mightiest beings, and she gets the respect from Kola and Gerber that she deserves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that, and I mean. The the next issue after this, we will we will play into Steve Gerber being Steve Gerber, but when when we get into some some of the weirder territory of the Phantom Zone, but for this issue, I was like, I, I was really impressed. I was like, I thought in just a few pages he demonstrated that he had a really good handle on these superheroes, on these characters, and I was like, and he was known for being one of those more cerebral and, and getting into psychedelic and weird stuff over at Marvel and, and he could do, you know, those stories. But I was like, if he had taken over, if he had had a run of Supergirl or Wonder Woman or Batman or Green Lantern, I was like, I think it would have been fine. I think he pretty much demonstrated that he knew how to write these characters. Maybe some of that was, you know, edit, strong editorial guidance, but... I think it's just I, I was really impressed that he felt like he was a pretty seamless fit in this DC world. Given that he, I am like he had only done a few DC comics before this, and then you know he would do some later in the two thousands. I think before his death. Yeah, he acquits himself great, and and as I said before, when you think about how compressed the story is, or at least this issue. I didn't feel cheated, right? That the action is compressed, but is well represented and well written. So, um, so it felt like full. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, uh, favorite pages, favorite art uh, standouts. Um, clearly, I mean, I, I, I think we we're all fans of you know, page ten, as Martin mentioned, the the Supergirl debut. Uh, that's a great little page. Really, really big fan of that one. Uh, what else do we like? Well, I had two, but I'm going to come for the second one, which is page 20, which is a little story in itself. As, super, as a Wonder Woman com- you know, comforts and helps Namek up from the floor after he's been burned by the two mutants. And he then, he then sort of regenerates from being a, a Kryptonian monstrous skeleton into being himself again, mm. and then just loses it completely because he's been so disturbed by the whole thing and just belts the heck out of Wonder Woman. And the sheer power of that blow against Wonder Woman. It's, I've never seen Diana take a blow so hard. Mm. I mean, the, the, the physicality is amazing, and like, along, along, with, along with the letters, who I think... I think is it, is it ben, yeah, it's ben, I think it's Ben Order, this issue. The lettering, the side you see, the type sort of smashed power, power, you know, power bat blasters of his hits on the head. It's just, it's just... It's just a creepy page that becomes sort of from physical horror to just general superhero bashing but different to what i've ever seen previously in a dc comic 
Yeah, that was my runner-up, too. I really like that page as well. Well, for me, I'll say um, 10, obviously, but the one that I said that is my favorite is 25, where Supergirl is now in the Fortress of Solitude, confronts General Zod. She's not standing down to this guy, almost gets tackled from behind by somebody else, is still fighting. That whole page is really um, is really dynamic and really beautiful and, and again, shows uh, how well Colin draws Supergirl. Um, I'll mention just... Um, 22 as well if if it's not favorite page it's what page would you want to own i think it would probably be 22 because that has both supergirl and a gene colon batman um and so even though um the art is you know just more storytelling and not as crazy that would probably be the one i would want hanging up <laughs> that's a good one yeah all right moving on phantom zone issue three the terror from beyond twilight uh, again, the cover was by Colin and Giordano. The on-sale date was December 17, 1981. On Earth, a barely conscious Supergirl is flung by Zod's men into a nuclear furnace in the Fortress of Solitude. She wakes up just in time to stop herself from disintegrating and hides to recover from her injuries. In Metropolis, Lois Lane, Jimmy Olsen, and Batman converge on Charlie Queskel's blown-out apartment to find the mad prophet Jerem rambling. From his words, Batman deduces Jerem and other Kryptonian fugitives escaped from the Phantom Zone, and that is likely where Superman is. However, at the same time, Superman and Charlie fly through the barrier, leaving the misty shadow world of the Phantom Zone that we know, and enter a savage wasteland with a pink sun stealing Superman's powers. The two are attacked by winged demon birds who carry them to their nest. Before Superman and Charlie are eaten by baby demon birds, the pink sun turns yellow, restoring Superman's power. He picks up Charlie, and they fly to the sun, a portal that takes them into a cave. As the cave floods, they go through another portal, a door, and enter a sort of pleasure harem full of exotic women with freaky masks. One of the women removes her mask, and her head is a Kryptonian Rontor, the creature Quexol was convicted of killing. The sight restores his memory and changes his clothing back to Kryptonian regalia. Another woman removes her mask to show Superman her head is the planet Krypton, which explodes. As the room collapses, Superman and Quexol fall into a pool and wake up near heavenly pearly gates and are met by Thulkar, a Kryptonian from a secret of sorcerers. Thulkar tells them their journey is over. Beyond this point lies only the Aether, the Oversoul, a godlike force constantly reshaping its own reality. Undeterred, Superman and Quexel fly off to meet the Aether and to return to Earth, but as soon as they confront it, it appears to destroy them rather easily. Back on Earth, Supergirl wakes up to find the Kryptonians have left the fortress. They've taken all of Superman's weapons and tech out into space, where they've assembled a massive cannon pointed directly at Earth. All right, well... If you didn't know that this was a Steve Gerber story, the cover for number three would probably be a giveaway. Because <laughs> we've got this little triptych of Superman flirting with this, you know, woman with a weird mask, with this pink little glowy face, like kind of fl- flaming thing above him. And then the next one, he takes off the mask, and it's a planet, and then the planet explodes. And all this, we get this little text, have you ever noticed that on some days, everything seems to go wrong? Wow. 
Yeah, for, for me, I almost feel like if you put Superman in just plain clothes, it could easily be the cover of, like, The House of Secrets or The Unexpected, something like that. Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, or, so, or, uh, or it's another it, Silver Age pastiche where things are just kind of like weird and silly and like you get like oh, this whole little comic strip in these three panels, yeah. Yeah. It is deep, deeply, deeply odd. I mean, I, I've never seen anything like it before and I've never seen anything like it since. All, although, I mean, the, the, the priestesses are so weird. I, I still don't know what, what they're all about. It's Superman and Charlie were on some kind of sort of cosmic geographic drug trip. Who knows? <laughs> I mean, how how do you guys interpret this? Um, I I, I mean, both of the, both in when they're in the the sort of harem, both of these revelations have an effect of kind of like showing the 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 character's failure or or, or something that's kind of like like some tragic thing idea or concept that led them to this point. And is perhaps sort of something that motivates them to keep fighting on. I don't know if that is the intention of it or not. Yeah, you know, later on, I'm almost positive it's in the next issue, when we actually meet uh, the ether spirit itself, it wants to absorb these guys. And so I agree with you, Ryan, and that these are either... Um, their failures or things that they're afraid of, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wonder if this is just a way, like, this place is just trying to break them down. Yeah. Uh, you know, let me show you a beautiful woman, something that can seduce you, and then, oh my gosh, it turns into something that actually scares you, right? You know, as a way to, like, bring you in and then break you down. Right, right. And Charlie's confrontation with the Rondor headed priestess, that does finally give him back his memory and, you know, let him realize that, in fact, he was Quexel, and you get him his costume changing back to the original one so that moves the story along a little bit right right mm. and again I mean, was that was that the intended effect was it intended to terrify him to confront him with this crime thing but did the if this is being controlled by the oversoul or if there's something else involved in this was that was that you know just like what was giving him his memory back meant to hurt him or was that an unintended consequence and showing superman the destruction of a planet as if that is his past and his future if he could, that kind of confronting him that he'll never be he, he couldn't save krypton and he won't be able to save earth either is the oversoul thinking that that is going to bring superman to despair because that's if you've been reading a lot of superman comics you're like no that's probably going to charge him up and and get him to fight <laughs> even harder that's that's what we love about him Exactly. Yeah. Priestesses of the, of the Crimson Sun. Did they remind you guys also? Oh, sorry, was it just me or did it remind you of Ruby Tuesday from the Defenders? Yeah. Ruby Thursday. I apologize. Ruby Thursday. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely of whatever those that group is, the unmen, you know, yeah. especially when we just see the planet, right? Yeah. The headmen, yeah. the headmasters, the head, yeah. The yeah. headmen, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, Gerber, Gerber likes those types of things, yeah. Yeah, this is definitely like, you know, this miniseries kind of takes a left-hand turn, this issue, right? So, you know, it's basically like um, a standard superhero um, story until we get here. And then you're going through all of these different, I guess it's like uh, circles of hell, different dimensions, um, each one with a different scene. And uh, the thing that always strikes me is that Superman is so matter-of-fact about everything. It's like, oh, I think I've been here before. And then it's like, oh, I can't fly anymore, but I'll, I'll attack these birds. And then at one point he says something ludicrous like, well, the last time I was here 
Um, I was in contact with beings that were faster than light, and I was carrying a golden medallion that the Guardians gave me. So perhaps why it's different now. It's like, it's just a, a little bit funny that he's just not completely perplexed about the things that are happening and that he just sort of goes with it. <laughs> yeah, it would, have, it would have been a bit more, bit more dramatic if Superman wasn't quite so matter-of-fact and, you know, un, unflappable. But I, I think, yeah, I think only if the point of this issue was was just to show off Gene Colan's art and just, you know, let let him go find Gene Colan and just, you know, sort of strange areas, strange characters. I mean, the Kryptonian wizard Thulkar looking like a cross between like, Two-Face and Norse drag. He's just such a, a creepy, weirdo character. But also, actually, yes, it does give Gerber the chance to go the full Gerber. In fact, yeah, it plays, this issue plays to both of their strengths, to be fair, doesn't it? Yeah, and that, that yeah, I, I definitely, I think it does. And I, well, I kind of had two questions. In, in one part, I wanted to think, like, we get this revelation from Mon-El in the previous story, and then in, in this one, it really kind of plays out that the Phantom Zone is not what we've always thought it was, that it's that he actually says it's hell, and we get all of these different representations, these different levels or circles. I mean, as, as longer-term fans of the character and this history, how did you feel about that sort of retconning of what the Phantom Zone is in this this new history? Do you think, I mean, do you accept this as what the 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 Phantom Zone is, or do you have to kind of make a a headcanon excuse for this, or do you not buy this? I had a hard time buying this. Um, in particular, what I didn't like was that Monel, who supposedly talks to Superman every now and then, mm-hmm. only now says, "Hey, by the way, there's a back door," because <laughs> you you figure that he might want to warn Superman. Like there are all of these terrible people that are here. That should they get up the gumption to try to go through these different things, they might actually escape. Um, so that part I thought was a little bit tough. And then again, remember, I'm like. A, a kid of 12 when I'm reading this, right? You know, you keep moving forward into next issue and how crazy it gets. When it was done, I was like, I have no idea what I just read. The Phantom <laughs> Zone is just going to be the Phantom Zone, right? <laughs> you know, so. I'm, I'm with Andrew. I mean, if, if, if Monel knew more, he should have warned them. But I could, I can certainly buy that Monel didn't mention it previously because Superman has carried the guilt of. Monel having to be protected into the Phantom Zone due to lead poisoning for decades, well, decades for the several, you know, so, since he was a teenager for himself. So, Monel probably wouldn't want Superman to feel worse about knowing what this truly, truly hellish place is. Because, as far as he knows, you just, as he said previously, you're just flying around in the in a grey area, being being a thought form and being able to occasionally interact with people on Earth. Mm. But uh, yeah, I mean, this this was so off the wall, but. It was contained. It was contained in a four-issue miniseries. I wasn't expecting it to bleed back into the main comics, particularly. And I don't. I don't think it ever really did, apart from that one issue. Well, it was it even in that DC Comics Presents issue, particularly, and everything changed after that. So, I was able to enjoy it just as a completely bonkers head trip. Really, you know, um, strange visuals, strange reactions. It was it was a change from the previous issues and different. I, I enjoyed it. It was it wasn't my Phantom Zone. Let's say that. Yeah, I mean, I I sort of worked, had to like rewrite this in my head and say that the what I mean we'll we'll learn more about it in the next chapter. But the this ether thing, this oversoul, is like an alternate dimension that is encroaching on our universe. And the Phantom Zone just happens to be at sort of like the border of it or whatever it is. It's kind of there's there's like a permeable space there that allows them to go. But I 
I, I, I don't think like all of those different levels and those areas that they flow through are necessarily like the sub basement of the Phantom Zone. That uh, I, I think I think the Phantom Zone should be just the the normal negative space that we've always kind of known and assumed that, that, that we've seen before. Um, but getting into the other thoughts of like, like the the writing and the art and Gerber and Gene Cole and kind of embracing some of the weirdness that they really excel at. We'll see. We see it here in this issue, and we'll see it a little bit more in the next one too. I think this is some of Colin's best weird kind of psychedelic stuff that he did in this era, like the eighties. Um, and we saw some of this in Night Force too, Ange. Like we talked about this, but towards the end of that book, when Colin had to do a lot of kind of like weird, trippy like dark energy and stuff like that. I didn't think the art was nearly that strong. And part of it is I'm wondering if Gerber just be this, the strength of Gerber's scripts. If just if Colin knew how to read Gerber scripts or knew what Gerber wanted a little bit more than what, whatever Roy Thomas and Marv Wolfman were writing for them. I'm not saying one is a better writer, but I'm thinking maybe just, the what the what was written down on the page for Colin to draw might have been a little bit more clear from Gerber scripts than it was than what he was getting from Marv Wolfman at, at that point in the eighties, um, and maybe Colin had to do a lot more heavy lifting and was just drawing weird stuff that didn't always look that great because some of those later issues of Night Force are kind of impenetrable. You know, when when you think about the bulk of that first Night Force series, which is whatever the first nine issues, that one big story, yeah, all of that, all of that stuff is just like miasma and weird wraiths and like unshapable spirits, mm-hmm. um, which I think after a while just becomes like a one trick pony, like oh, another blob with eyes, right? Whereas here, it's like take your magic mushrooms, you know. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and uh, and just ride the wave, right? right? I mean, this is just really one thing after another. Um, so so it could be that Marv just said, you know, crazy stuff, and uh, and Colin just did something. Whereas this might have been like weird pink faced birds, right? And, <laughs> yeah. and so it, it it probably is something like that, a little bit more less Marvel style, more full script, if I had to guess. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, the the creepy the the bird gargoyle demon things are are horrific. You know, they've got like almost like pterodactyl bodies. They've got uh, uh, pointed tails, like the the staple. They've got like these, yeah, these alien pink faces and these long projectile tongues that wrap around Superman and Charlie's arms and legs. And those are like the babies that are just hatching out of their eggs. Um, yeah, it's it's terrifying. And then the, yeah, the stuff that you mentioned about like Fulcar and stuff at the end. Um, yeah, just like the the stuff in the Phantom Zone, like this was, you know, having Superman off page basically for one issue. Now we really come back to him, uh, and we get some great stuff with him and him being heroic and him taking charge and him being confident. He's like, yeah, I know we're gonna get out of this. Stick with me. I'm gonna get you out of here. I'm gonna save you. At the same time, the few pages that we get of the of the heroes of uh, when Supergirl saves herself when she's being thrown in the furnace and she like digs her nails into the side of like this like steel cauldron or whatever to hold herself up just by her fingers embedded in this. I'm like, oh man, that that seems painful, but it's also pretty badass that Supergirl is strong enough to do that. Um, and then the pages with Batman just look terrific. It's a really cool scene. 
Um, so yeah, they just more action in this one. It just amps up, and it's really, really good. What were some of your favorite pages, uh, art-wise or, or story-wise, in this one? My favorite panels include the, on this on the second page when Superman's flying through the zone before everything goes colorful. You get to see what the black and white black and white Colan Dezunga Superman looks like and he is just magnificent it just looks amazing but my favourite my favourite page of all would be page 18 in which Charlie you know, we're with the priestesses still and Charlie's really you know in the face of the priestesses and you've got at the top of the page you've got three priestesses looking like exploring Las Vegas showgirls as they take their heads head, head pieces <laughs> off and go boom and uh, at the bottom of the page you have another one taking a head off, headpiece off and she's a rondo underneath, and Charlie's Charlie's going, oh my lord, with you know with, with special lowercase lettering from, I think it's I think it's Mill snapping again probably on this one, and just get yeah, the the pages, so freaky yet the way he draws Charlie without every man looking looks so realistic, which you know ground grounds the thing for me. I just I just can't stop looking at that page. It's really hard to turn over. It's excellent. All right, uh, for me, I'll say. Um... I am a big fan of the Atomic Cauldron. Um, uh, that's like one of my favorite Kryptonian artifacts. And of course, those pages have Supergirl on it. So um, uh-huh. I was tempted to pick one of those. But I'm going to go with page 17, the page before Martin's, which is when the woman pulls off the mask and it's the planet Krypton. And she's talking to Superman. And she says, you know, I'm all of the things you've loved and lost your mother, the Kryptonian actress that you fell in love with when you went back in time. Like, um, I just love that. It's too, it's too trippy not to, not to call my favorite, uh, and and it was a coin toss between that and eighteen because when it turns out to be a Rondor head under the mask, that's pretty weird. Um, but but I like this one more. I, I love those two. Um, I also I, I'm going to be a little bit of a homer, but pages eight and nine because the the Batman centric pages. Um, with the on first on page eight when Jerem reaches for him and he like throws him and he like throws himself backwards and you see it, Lois and Jimmy reacting and Batman does like the full flip lands on the cop car and then Jerem shooting his laser beams and then the next page with like the cop car exploding as Batman is diving out of the way and cops are returning fire. Those are really really cool pages. So you know, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if Dick Giordano, you know, who was editing this, which was unusual because normally it was obviously it was still Julia Schwartz's tenure on the Superman books, but I think probably because he was a, an artist editor, they put Dick Giordano on. But I wouldn't be surprised if Dick Giordano had jumped in and edited the Batman Batman panels himself. Possibly. Hmm. Possibly. Yeah. He, I mean, he worked on the covers. He didn't get interior credit, but he might have. He might have worked on those himself. All right, Phantom Zone number four, The Phantom Planet. Cover date, April 1982. The on-sale date was January 21st, 1982. Azrael and Nadira go to a nightclub. Their nihilism provokes a fight, and they end up torching the place, killing everyone there. Batman learns of Charlie Queskill's Kryptonian origin from Perry White, and figures with so many Kryptonians on Earth, but with Superman absent, humanity is going to need some help. Batman activates the JLA signal, but the satellite headquarters is still careening toward the edge of the solar system. The signal is picked up, however, by Wonder Woman, who has learned the story from her captive nam and Green Lantern, who is flying a Ferris Air jet toward New York because his ring's battery is dead. 
In France, Feora bathes naked in a stream and murders the poor shepherd who discovers her and is drawn to her lethal beauty. Then Feora flies out to space to meet with General Zod, Jax Ur, Cruel, and Vaycox, who constructed a phantom ray cannon out of tech from Superman's fortress and powered by the Green Lantern battery. The cannon will send Earth into the phantom zone after 24-hour rotation. In the ether, which lies in the very core of the Phantom Zone, Superman and Quexel wake up, hanging chained over a pool of, in a cave full of monsters. The ether, being the master of this reality, chooses to appear this way as the Oversoul rises to tell the Kryptonians their bodies no longer exist, only their souls, which it shall destroy. Then Superman and Quexel melt, and their fluid selves swirl about and recongeal on what looks like an empty city street. The Oversoul appears as a giant demon in the sky. Quexel knows that Superman's attention has been divided between his concern for Earth and trying to protect him. So the former Charlie Quexel, who finally has his powers back, attacks the Oversoul, sacrificing himself. With Quexel dead, Superman flies against the Oversoul, dodging its attacks. He flies directly through its monstrous head into its mind, where Superman is barraged with the agonizing screams of every creature destroyed by the ether. But Superman can take it, and at last, he bursts through the crystalline form of the ether, ripping a hole in reality and appearing back in our world. In New York, Batman, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, and Supergirl meet at the JLA teleporter and share stories. Supergirl looks up to space, searching for the satellite, and instead finds Zod's phantom cannon. She flies up to destroy it at the same moment Superman arrives. The cousins destroy the cannon and then set about fighting the criminals, even as Green Lantern gets his battery back. Superman and Supergirl take out three of the others, while Zod and Feora race back to Earth to cause as much destruction as possible. They are spotted by Nadira and Azrael, who cause Zod to crash, land, and Feora to burn. When Feora climbs out of the river, Supergirl knocks her out. Superman takes out General Zod. Then Azrael and Nadira find Jerem, the mad prophet who has a chunk of kryptonite and desires to send them to all to Great Rao. Jerem and Nadira succumb to the K-poisoning as Azrael succumbs to his own pyrokinetic powers and burns to death. Green Lantern uses his ring to create a new Phantom Zone projector, and the heroes send the six surviving Kryptonians back to hell. Superman flies off to retrieve the JLA satellite and privately mourn the death of Quexel. Alright, what do we think of this fourth and final installment of the series? So, for me, um, it's a fascinating issue for a couple of reasons. So, the whole ending of Superman finally coming out and defeating the Kryptonians takes place over just a handful of pages at the end, completely compressed, right? You know, like, think about the fact that there was like two and a half years of new Krypton stories, you know, a few years back at DC. And in four pages, he has two Kryptonians defeating six Kryptonians, you know, or however many there are. Uh, And when you uh, compare that to the scenes at the beginning, there's like four pages at this nightclub, and there are these like three pages of Feyora killing the shepherd. That's seven pages that maybe this back end of the story could have uh, used to sort of bulk up. But those scenes of Nadira and Azrael in that nightclub and that scene of Feyora are so compelling and so really sickening and horrifying that... That in the end, I was like, you know, that's why I'm not a writer. And that's why Gerber is a writer. This is actually a perfect issue. Um, 
because I think that the whole thing plays out very, very well. Um, I do love that um, in the end, Azrael, because remember, these were like, you know, well, if I die, whatever, until he's faced with his own death, and then he tries to run, which I thought was like, just kind of shows, you know, oh, you're not as cool as you think you are. Um, So I thought that was great. Um, But this whole thing, and specifically the pages of Superman flying through the insanity, it you know, you could almost put those as Doctor Strange flying through nightmare pages uh, drawn by Gene Colan, right? That was the feeling that I got, mm-hmm. which just makes this whole miniseries why I felt we needed to cover it. It's just this weird amalgam of straightforward superheroic stories and this bizarre stuff all smooshed. Um, uh, I just think this is great. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally with Andrew. You would expect the fourth issue to be the big battle issue. You know, having had three issues of sort of going hither and yon and lots of different things happening, you would have expected issue four, probably, if you like me anyway, to be, you know, all the superheroes being led by Superman and Charlie against the Phantom Zone villains. But instead, Gerber opens up with this little essay explaining that in the DC universe, Bizarro is a rock movement, is a pop movement that, you know, believes that asserts that anyone born after 1961 is an imperfect duplicate of a human being. And the Silver Superman fans who've grown up with, you know, Bizarro number one and his wacky family. It's just a lot a lot of fun. And then you do have this this sequence with with the uh, the two the two the two the two <laughs> I forgot the name Nadira and Azrael going bonkers, going berserk at this at this concert. And then ending up with a panel of them more walking off, walking off into into the foreground like as if they're on some kind of action movie panel with death and destruction behind them, so brilliantly drawn by Cole and it's just excellent and just a really strange way into the story, which it's a fantastic ending, really. I just I love the whole thing. I love Charlie's sacrifice. I love Superman's reunion with Supergirl. I think the 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 final I mean the the final the final page, it's you know, it gets even though it's a twenty seven page story, as they all were at this point, it's it's a little crowded. The ending's a bit sudden with Superman just flying off in a panel. But the fact that have such memorable sequences as as the, the pop concert and the scene the scene with the uh, Fiore in France. I've never forgotten it. Like I said at the beginning, I I wasn't expecting much from the story. Um, I just based on the name Phantom Zone when I saw it on Mike's Amazing World, I I really didn't have much interest in it because I felt like I. I, I in, in a short amount of time, I felt like I had been exposed to every Phantom Zone type of story that you could get, and, and there's really only one to tell. Um, I've also just, I mean, I kind of get bored with uh, Kryptonian prisoners escaping and Superman having to fight other Kryptonians. So I wasn't expecting much from this story. And then I breezed through this in a really short period of time. I think like like one afternoon, I, I binged all four of these issues, and I think I contacted you guys right away. And I was like, when can we do this? And unfortunately, it, it took us about like six months, almost a year, from when I, I actually wanted to do it to when we were now actually recording it. So it did take us a while, but I, I was so excited to do this as soon as I read it, because I loved this story. Um, and Ange, to, to the things that you were saying you're, this is a it's a weird little artifact because you you get this entire story played out i mean this could be a big action packed summer event story this could be a movie or you they, today dc would have done this in seven or eight issues drawn by jason fabach or ivan race whoever is like their main head mainstream writer who's like sets the house style and it would have looked great it would have looked epic 
it would have been told fantastically, and it would have been a great summer event action story. But we get this one, and it's not better or worse for being shorter or for having Gene Colan and Steve Gerber work on this together. It's just a different interpretation, and they're focusing on things like these two mutant superpowered Kryptonians who are just nihilistically hateful of life. And when they come to Earth, they don't want to subjugate humanity. They're going to go to a nightclub and listen to like a, this bizarro band or whatever. And if somebody spills a drink, they're going to punish them just because they what a, because who's going to stop them? They they have no consequences. And then they're going to spend two pages on uh, this beautiful serial killer just naked, like skinny dipping in a lake, and this poor hapless you know shepherd who just happens to see her and. Sure, when she sedu- when she lures him into the water, of course he's going to dive in and start making out with her until she shatters his spine and leaves him to die in the water. Oh, like this is the thing. Like I mean, amongst this story with a Phantom Zone projector and like nine different Kryptonians at Superman level strength, all fighting each other. These are these little pocket things that they choose to focus on, and somehow it makes it great. And Gene Colan, I think, is as strong and as capable when he's drawing Supergirl fighting these other Kryptonians in the Fortress of Solitude or the heroes flying over the streets of Metropolis as he is inside the psychedelic mind of this Oversoul thing. And we're getting all these little weird things. Like, it's it's a great display of his artistic chops. It's a really fun and unique type of story. Um, and I, I had a blast with this. I, I, I just, I like this. It's, it's one of my favorite Supergirl stories that I've ever read. Uh, and it's just, yeah, I just, I thought this was terrific. I, I loved this one. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I mean, this, this really is, this is prime Bronze Age Supergirl, the Supergirl that we got in DC, in DC Comics Presents. And, you know, to, whenever she appeared in Superman, you know, she was always stronger when she was with Superman than when she was in her own series. I think, I think that's fair to Angie, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, this is really she. She really is a main character and do, and lays the smackdown a lot. Is really smart and and really effective in this. I think she's great. Yeah, I mean, one of one of my favorite scenes art- artistically is on on page twenty two when you have Supergirl taunting Fiora, who's been burnt, and. What does Supergirl says? The Supergirl says, "You think so, Fiora, with those looks and no personality? Save the best for another night, sweet cheeks." And Colan yeah. had Colan shooting her, as it were, from behind. Supergirl's bending down towards Fiora, looking vulnerable and scared for once in the panel. And it's just air to Supergirl I've never seen previously. I, w- I would have loved to, based on this, to have seen Colan Gerber do a few issues of Supergirl series. Yeah, you know, I love that she says, you know, save the feds for another night, sweet cheeks. And then the next panel is her laying her out with like a left hook. And she says, it's past both our bedtimes, right? You know, that's like a good, that's a good quip. That's a good superhero quip. Yeah. Um, page 16, Clark putting putting the shirt on because Charlie was wearing the costume when he died. And, and putting the, the shirt on and then the cape and putting on the boots and raising his fist. And just taking off and, and reaching out to fight the the demon or the the oversoul. Um, that's just a great Superman moment. I love the way that looks. Yeah, crying to the heavens for vengeance. Yeah, 
Uh, I'm going to say that my favorite page has to be 19, where Superman and Supergirl destroy the Phantom Zone cannon mm-hmm. and uh, and you know basically wreck the Phantom Zone villain's plan. Yeah. But again, if we were playing, what page would I buy to own? It has to be number. Hold on. It has to be number. 17 with superman flying through the the craziness uh, of mm-hmm. ether that's just that's just a powerful page um you know again think of me at a, at a tender age reading this and being like what am i seeing here it <laughs> <laughs> really is incredible i mean carl gafford has done a wonderful job coloring the, the horrible ghosts and demons and hags that mm-hmm. gene colan's conjured up here and and that that space kind of i mean i uh, Ryan, you were saying previously that today this, this story could be retold over 8, 12 issues or something. But I think Brian Bendis, only a couple of years ago, within the past year, maybe took one element, the, the idea of a space cannon being fired at Earth by Phantom Zone criminals to send Earth into the Phantom Zone. And the Phantom Zone there was a, was, wasn't was a million miles away from this in terms of being much more physical place. But as, as for, I asked, yeah, favourite favorite page of this one for me... It would be, well, I'm going to grab two. We've talked about them previously. It's pages seven and eight, the scene with Fiora and the unfortunate young French shepherd, Gerard. I think that could be my favorite for the whole series. It's great. I mean, this, is, this isn't so much Superman presents the Phantom Zone as Superman presents the onset of puberty. I mean, you've got Gerber's rich prose describing young Gerard's feelings as he finds the bathing Fiora. And Colan just brings it beautifully to life. You've got this wonderful, gorgeous pastoral scene. And very quickly it moves into the realm of the sexy and the sinister. And finally you turn over, the th- over to the third page of the sequence. And it is just horrific. It really, really puts Fiora in the upper echel- echelons of scary criminals for me. And I just think Colan and Zuniga and Gaffet brilliantly brought it to life. Yeah, you know, again, like I said before, right, you know, I would not want my mother flipping through this book. (laughs) (laughs) It would probably mean trips to 7-Eleven would end. (laughs) Now, as you guys were mentioning, this story sort of concludes. There's an epilogue in the final issue of DC Comics Presents. uh, Written by Gerber, not not drawn by Gene Cullen. I think it was Rick Veach who did that one? Correct. What happens in that story? I I haven't read it, so what's, what's the story about? Um, you know, I'm going to go from memory because I have to be honest, I didn't read it completely, but it ether, um, uh, ends up saying that like they've been psychologically scarred by so many Kryptonians being sort of in that realm. So it possesses Mr. Mixo's Pitlick and, um, and comes to earth to have revenge on Superman. And one of the scenes that is really terrifying in that is that it brings Argo city, which you can imagine is a chunk of kryptonite floating in space filled with dead Kryptonians and just throws it into Metropolis. So there's like Kryptonian bodies all over the place. There's kryptonite everywhere. Um, And then somehow at the end, it, it, something ends up happening that it, it forms itself into a crystal heart. And there's this great panel of Superman saying something like, what just happened? And it's like, like exactly Superman. I don't understand what just happened. It's like really bonk. It's like really, really bonkers. Oh. It really is to- total madness. I mean, it came hot on the heels of around the same time as we had Supergirl revealed after she died in the crisis, in the crisis to have been married. And then you have Superman take a body back, back to Argo City and then you're having this the, the final fate of Argo City pre-crisis with it just being so horribly horribly ended by 
by crashing into the earth. And I just hated this issue. I hadn't read it for years and years until I read it for this podcast. And I'd forgotten actually just how awesomely horrible it is. I mean, it's got echoes of whatever happened to the man of tomorrow in that you just have the villains going really, really uber bad and bonkers and doing things that you'd never get had the had the continuity been continuing. I just oh it, it just upsets me to see it again. <laughs> and can I can I actually I must get to see Ether again until I'd heard Ryan narrating the story here, it hadn't actually hit me that his his name is a pun on the ether. Because it's spelled A E T H Y R, isn't it? Oh, ether, yeah. right, Ryan? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sure, that might have had something to do with Gerber's uh, inspiration. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, one more time, thank you guys for for heartily recommending this miniseries. Because I wouldn't have I wouldn't have pulled the trigger on this one unless you guys uh, were were so uh, strong in your convictions that I should cover this one. And I'm really glad that I did because, yeah, this is one of my this is one of my more favored uh, DC miniseries that I've read in a while. Uh, had a whole lot of fun with this one. Great, great art. Great seeing Gene Colan draw some of these characters and some of these worlds, and uh, uh, getting a chance to see hear hear Steve Gerber write some of the dialogue coming out of their mouths. But this was a ton of fun. Uh, and of course, it's always uh, nice to have the excuse to talk to you guys about this stuff too. So. Um, uh, for now, where else in the, well, you don't have podcasts, but where else in the blogosphere or social media or anything, where else can people find you if they want to hear more from you, Martin? Well, I'm often at Angel's blog in the comments section, but about that, I have my own blog called Too Dangerous for a Girl, and I'm usually reviewing issues of Superman comics and Wishing they were as good as the Bronze Age ones that I enjoy, but there's a lot of there's a lot of good stuff there. So yeah, you, you can find me on there, and you can follow me on Twitter or join me on Twitter rather at 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 Mark Gray M A R T G R A Y, and I'm around the Firing Water Network occasionally when I'm very lucky. <laughs> and Ange, where can people find you? Uh, first, I'll say uh, you got to go to Mort's uh, blog because um, he is the type of reviewer I wish I was in terms of just being quite pithy and getting down to it. Um, if you want to read very long reviews, you can come to my blog, which is called Comic Box Commentary, where I review all things Supergirl, Superman, and Legion. Although right now I'm in the midst of doing a look back at the character of Mark Shaw um, as Manhunter as we get into the um, latest Leviathan miniseries coming up. I'm also very active on Twitter um, at Dr. Ange 70. Very, very cool. Very cool. As always, great to talk to you guys again. Uh, listeners, don't go away because I'm going to play a promo here, and then I will be back with your listener feedback from the last episode. Stick around. Burn. Convulse. <laughs> <laughs> Richard Pryor? Yes, it's Superman 3 Movie Minute. On Superman 3 Movie Minute, we'll be examining Richard Lester's 1983 film Five Minutes at a Time. This time around, we don't just have Superman. We have evil Superman, Lana Lang, a scary robot lady, and yes, Richard Pryor. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Podcast Network.
you don't know about me and him? Me and Superman? On the last episode, Al Sedano helped me review Captain Marvel number two, which featured the spaceborne hero Marvel taking on the dreaded Super Scroll in a microcosm of the Kree Scroll War. As always, we got lots of social media likes and shares, and some feedback over at the Fire and Water website, which you can always find at fireandwaterpodcast.com. The first comment came from my ride-or-die partner on Batman Nightcast, Chris Franklin. I mentioned during the show that Colin's depiction of the scrolls look like green goblins, but they're lacking the signature chin folds that is the standard. Chris said, Kirby could never remember how to draw the scrolls from one appearance to another, so Colin gets a pass on the chin thing. Cisco had chimed in that the scrolls are shapeshifters, after all, and then Captain Entropy came in with the no prize to end all no prizes. So that week, the Emperor decided to try a no-chin-lines thing. It was avant-garde and a little transgressive, because, you know, it's reminiscent of the hated Kree. But he was making a statement, and that statement was, We don't hate the Kree for how they look. We're shapeshifters. We wouldn't be so shallow. We hate the Kree for what they've done to us, and for who they are as a culture and a people. It was just as toxic and wrong as appearance-based animus, but so much more sophisticated. The homeworld was a buzz, and of course everyone followed suit to show that they were sophisticated too. But the week after that, the Emperor decided that it looked stupid, and it was over just like that. Whew, that was a <laughs> very well thought out and argued, Captain. I, I think that you make a very strong case for it was just the Emperor's whim. Uh, something else that came up during my discussion with Al was how much co-creator credit Colin should get for Captain Marvel if the Kree were already created by Jack Kirby and Stan Lee in the Fantastic Four. Well, both Rob McCarthy and Martin Gray mentioned in the comments that Kirby never drew the Kree military uniforms prior to this, so Colin did invent the green and white fin-headed look in Captain Marvel's first appearance, which is cool, because, as I said, I've always loved that costume in sort of a Silver Age spaceman kind of way, just like Adam Strange. Artists have tweaked that costume over the years, updated it, modernized it, but I still really like the classic look. Anyway, that is going to be all for this episode. I am hoping to get the next showcase of Gene Colan out next month, and we will be venturing back to the black and white Marvel magazines. For now, though, I want to thank Dr. Ange and Martin Gray for joining me on this discussion of The Phantom Zone, and for recommending it in the first place, really. I had a lot of fun with the story. If you've never read it, seek it out. I will also have scans of some of our favorite pages on the website for you to check out. My little girl, you're so young and pretty, and one thing I know is true, you'll be dead before your time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fire and Water Presents. If you enjoyed our discussion, please support the show on social media by liking or favoriting the posts on Facebook and Twitter. You can leave a comment on the episode post at fireandwaterpodcast.com, and you can always go to Apple Podcasts and leave a nice five-star review for FW Presents or any other show on the Fire and Water Network. If you really like the show, like really, really crushing on it, consider sponsoring the Fire and Water Network on Patreon. For more information, head on over to patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. As always, thanks for listening. We gotta get out of this place. If this is the last thing we have.
me and you Oh, you know it, baby And I know it too, baby 